Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Travelcast, episode 444. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Women and Aliens Month continues this week. We bring you a fun Drabblecast-commissioned space opera by author Kat Rambo called The Hands of Heroes. Let's dive right in. F&SF writer Kat Rambo lives and writes in the Pacific Northwest. She's been shortlisted for an Endeavor Award, Locus Award, World Fantasy Award, and most recently the Nebula Award. Her debut novel, Beasts of Tabat, appeared in 2015 from Wordfire Press, the same year she co-edited Ad Astra, the SFWA 50th Anniversary Cookbook. She's a former two-term president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and still volunteers with the organization. She runs the popular online writing school focused on fantasy and science fiction, the Rambo Academy of Wayward Writers. Check it out at academy.catrambo.com. The story is read to you by Sarah Tolbert. Sarah studied acting at Grinnell College and the National Theatre Institute at the Eugene O'Neill Center. She's narrated podcasts for Drabblecast, Fantasy, Escape Pod, Pseudopod, and Podcastle. In addition to voice acting, she enjoys performing in live theater and has earned a regional award from the Rocky Mountain Theater Association for her work. Sarah currently lives in Kansas with her amazing husband and adorable son. So without further ado, we bring you The Hands of Heroes by Kat Rambo. The Hands of Heroes by Cat Rambo The thing is, I was never a hero. The first wave of aliens taught me that. The war with them? My older brothers became heroes there. One died in the standoff at Usur 25, and we never did discover what happened to the other. My parents celebrated them both, burned scarlet and gold candles that made the house smell like flaming trees and sulfur every weekend without fail. They thought I'd follow my brothers. I'd been an unruly girl up until then, overproud and fond of testing myself to unreasonable limits in pursuit of boasting rights. I had broken four bones and had my nose smashed for me twice by the age of twelve, right after my brother died. My mother was patching me up the second time. The other girl had been saying something about my oldest brother, and I don't even remember what now. 
I do remember the drip of blood down the back of my throat and the way the bones, so freshly healed from the last time, throbbed in my flesh, and the smell of antiseptic she'd sprayed everywhere before she'd started. She said fondly, "'Going to be a hero like your brothers?' "'No,' I said. Her hands stopped, but I kept speaking into the silence. "'I'm going to be alive.' She never really looked me in the face after that. Looked sideways, around me, cold as glass. A year later, the war was dying away, with neither side having conquered the other, and when people said aliens, it didn't mean the ones that had killed my brothers. Turned out there were other kinds, with different heroes. Ones who didn't depend on being willing to wage war. I was just shy of 14 when I saw my first actual aliens. The Order of the Stellar Flame the newscasts said, and compared them to ancient paladins, devoted to justice, but a a slow justice. You could tell the newscasters weren't sure how to say it, because they weren't soldiers. They were marching in a parade near my school on a day when we were supposed to be taking classes together in order to increase our empathy and social awareness. The school let us out for the afternoon on the grounds that it would teach us even more. Big, most of them. Most of them looked like oversized human women, or close enough, though Jean tweaked and augmented in a way that you usually only saw in the children of the rich, who seemed obsessed with towering over the rest of the world. Most of the adults in the crowd were good at letting us stand in front of them, but some were, to my mind, and I think the mind of any ordinary good-hearted being, unreasonable. One old man actually shoved me away when I tried to wriggle in front of him, demanding angrily why my parents hadn't taught me any better. I was at that age where you can know an adult is wrong, but not that you can talk back. So I moved along so quickly that I stepped on toes, and then someone else pushed me, and I went sprawling into the face of the parade. I fell on the concrete, which chewed on the heels of my hands as I tried to stop myself. Brassy music had surrounded me until that moment. Now it died without a gasp. Nothing but the crowd's murmuring. A hand, warm and three times bigger than mine, helped me to my feet. Two other immense women brushed me off, checked me over. Once their soft-voiced questions determined that I was well enough, they moved me to the other side of the parade. They set me in front of a kindly man with two small children of his own, who positioned me with one of them on either side and let me watch unhampered for the rest of the parade. He even went so far as to include me when buying his own children leaf cups of the sticky, sweet red sap that is only sold in the early spring. The impression of those beings, their aura of power and softness and, above all, strength, combined in equal measure with goddess-like grace, stayed with me for years. And when I came to the end of my schooling, I sought them out. Because by then I'd learned that the stellar flame took recruits of any kind, from any planet or star system, even a small new one. As I'd said, they weren't soldiers. They were the ones that rebuilt things, that remade and reshaped that fixed what came out of the chaos, and while they could never make it entirely whole, they could come close enough. Close enough, I thought. I came home and refused to discuss the decision, simply demanded the traditional meal given to those going off-world. Then the next day, still tipsy from the wine that accompanied that feast, and dizzy with anxiety, I went down to the spaceport and boarded the ship I had been told to board. I don't know if my parents burned any candles after I had left. I was ready to be a stellar flame. I went to the school that they had back then, instead of using recordings and simulations. And the training they put me through was hard as any soldier's. 
They made me learn how to go without sleep or food and still do what had to be done, to aim my temper and my tongue as zealously as a weapon, to build things from only sand and sticks and my own sweat. By the time you came out of the Citadel of Lightning, you had been forged new, made into something your friends and family could never have dreamed you would become. Something, sometimes, that they said you couldn't be. That was a theme I'd hear over and over at the Citadel, among those that came there from other planets, other races. The complaint that those around someone had ignored their greatness, had focused on some other relative, usually, but not always, a child. And the answer they were given was always, life can be unfair, and you cannot let it determine who you are. We were told to seize our fates, that all our predecessors had done so. We were told stories of them, how sometimes they died in their efforts. And we told each other in turn that to fail at that was to fail at everything and be nothing worth valuing, a pebble in the midst of other pebbles, while if you worked at it, you could be a star in the sky far above. That first year, I never saw anyone else from my planet. I learned not to tell anyone where I'd come from either. Terra had a reputation for being backwater, even in those early days. More than that, it'd been the place where a mistaken plot hatched for the government coup that wiped out two star systems and the irreplaceable ancient technology that enabled travel between them. It wasn't that I was ashamed of where I came from, but there was a look of mingled pity and suspicion that came with the revelation. I learned to just mutter something about spaceport life. Most people would leave it at that. By then, everyone understood about spaceport orphans and how many ended up joining one service or another, sometimes willingly. That was something about the flame. No one ever claimed that its order took in children and deceived them, the way some other groups did. They offered me gene tweaking that first year. I took the minimum that I could to get along. It never sat right with me. That was one legacy of Terra, that way of thinking. I never was able to totally shake it, even when I knew it was in place and making me think wrong about it. Once or twice I considered getting a head meddler to fix it, but, well, given that I was opposed to just messing with my body, you can imagine how I stalled out on doing anything with my head. Because of that, I never got that far in the service. Never became a hero, one of those who forged the future out of impossibilities. I lacked fervor, one commander said. Zeal. I was good at some of it, don't get me wrong, but I could tell others had more of a thirst for it, and they seemed to end up places that demanded heroics, last stands and battles against the odds. The thing that occurred to me, though, was how many people it took to get them there, and how the things they did, making sure people got fed and housed or even just had a place to shit that wouldn't make them sick, how nothing might have happened without all the patient labor. That's what I devoted myself to. Making sure people had a place to shit. My parents would have said I couldn't get much farther from being a hero. My last year of school, they paired me up with a priestess, mostly as humanoid as I was. A skinny thing who'd been bred to auricular faints, so I had to watch over her all the time. Yes, it was psi-based magic, sure enough, but they never tell you how unglamorous magic is. How someone's eyes roll in the back of their head and you have to pull their tongue out of their throat to make sure they don't choke on their own predictions. From the way she mumbled, I thought she might come from circumstances much like my own. Late one night when we were on patrol, 
she opened up. It turned out I was right. Just four systems over, and a place known for its penny-pinching ways. We do less with more than any other settlement, she told me indignantly. But that's the frame they put around our picture, misers and scrimpers. Anyhow, she wasn't any more gene-tweaked than I was, though in her case it was because of some condition where the science and the magic didn't play nice together. She told me she'd assumed I had it too, that same patrol night, but neither of us had any room to be criticizing the other. We got along, and that seemed better than some of the other pairs, even though we'd never achieved that perfect pairing that lets you work as one together. For the rest of that year, we kept going pretty well, though I don't know that anyone could have said that we distinguished ourselves. When it came time for picking our assignments, I let them send me wherever they would, figuring that maybe Bona Fortuna would kiss me. Maybe she wouldn't. Didn't seem like she had at first, sending me out to a winter planet like Mask. But I made friends here. And if you're in the main city, which sits over hot springs, you can be warm all the time. I never planned or built monuments or things people would come to see, but I was a good requisitions officer. I kept things flowing the way that they should, and people had enough to eat. Nobody teased me about being from Terra, either. Out there on the edges, everyone knows that people have to come from somewhere and don't have any choice in the matter. I was coming up on the end of my tour there and thinking about whether to re-up or just find myself a place to retire to spend my days reading and thinking and growing ice radishes. That priestess came to see me, and now she had two kids in tow. She said they were hers and she was teaching them the ways of the temple. Skinny little things, skinnier and shorter than she'd been. I teased her at first that she was breathing into oblivion, and then when a look told me that it pained her, I gave off saying that. Truth was, I wasn't that happy to see her for that visit. School had been hard, as you might have realized already, and lately I had that feeling that I'd wasted time there, thinking I could become a hero. I dreamed about riding in a cart down roads that never got where they were going. I didn't need the priestess to read those dreams for me. She wouldn't tell me who fathered those children, and who knows what sort of circumstances there might have been. They were odd little kids, of indeterminate sex like mushrooms, and their stubby, close-cut hair was grayish-brown. That last night of her visit, we went walking in the park, and those children trailed us. They were both the age I'd been when I saw the parade and the women from the stellar flame, what seemed like a million years ago. I tried to remember what it was that had spoken to me about them, what it was about those sure hands standing me up that had pulled me into becoming them, I asked the priestess what had brought her to her own revelation, and she said that her parents had decided to send her, and she'd been one of the ones who hadn't had a choice in the matter. But do any of us really? she asked. She jabbed her thumb at the children. They were examining something by the frozen lake, a red sunset spilling across it toward them. I looked at the lake and the sky and the children and thought about where I'd meant to be back then. Despite what I'd told my parents, I always thought somehow I'd be a hero. I'd leave my impression on the world and inspire others. I'd live. If I'd been an arrow shooting myself into the future, I certainly would have thought I'd misjudged the mark. But standing here, smelling the dampness of the hot springs behind us, fighting the chill of the mountain breeze, I didn't think I had stepped too badly or that the hands had been wrong at all. You fall forward into the future, no matter what. 
Maybe hands pull you one way. Maybe they push you another. Maybe you're a hero. But more probably, you're a sidekick or support staff. Sometimes when you find yourself where you thought you'd always be, it's not what you'd expected. Most of the time it happens that way, actually. Would I be there, walking beside that lake, if that alien hadn't lifted me up? Hadn't made me feel like she'd selected me and only me? Would I have sensed a gap that was waiting for me to fill it? I don't know. But that's part of it all, too. Because that gap was shaped like me. Or at least, over time, that's what I made it into. I wasn't a hero. But I was necessary. I was one of the many hands rolling history's wheel along. And there, in that moment, I couldn't ask for anything more than that at all. Because those hands belong to heroes, all of them. Even if their names are lost in the dust, as the wheel keeps moving down the road, as the universe trundles along, whether candles light its path or not. That was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's close things out with our 100 character story winner this week by I Want Something New. Here goes. The damn fool boy shut the barn door after all the cows got turned inside out. At least they didn't need as much milking now. character stories we have a weekly contest in our forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the twabble section go check it out try writing one yourself you might be next week's winner follow the drabblecast on social media at the drabblecast to get the winners early each week the Travelcast is brought to you the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, blog about us, spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Marin Gagney. Find her awesome art at behance.net slash indelibleart. The Travelcast was brought to you this week by Bo Kyer, Abby Hilton, Jason Smith, Jason Cavella, Maria Dong, Jen Fisher, Tom Baker, the man with the head of an owl who watches you sleep from your outside window, Adam Pratt, Sandra O'Dell, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, we fall forward into the future, no matter what.
every five minutes. A transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.